I've always been intrigued with the way different family groups behave and interact when they gather at a dinner. In fact, it's kind of been a thing that I've studied and I've just wondered about the different family dynamics that occur. For example, I, I read a while back about a Puritan family in colonial New England. And for them, eating was serious business. So at the dinner table, nobody talked. The food was served, they put their heads down, and they focused on eating. That's how they did dinner. Now, if you came to my house, you would find something radically different. Because when we're together as a family, it is loud. It is boisterous. We talk together and the conversation covers a wide range of topics. We can discuss work and sports and life and faith. Sometimes we're serious. Sometimes we're lighthearted. And there's always, always a lot of laughter. We laugh at the funny circumstances of life. We laugh at ourselves. And sometimes, yes, we even laugh at each other. I can remember one time we were at this big family gathering with cousins and aunts and uncles and all kinds of people, and we lingered at the table a little too long. And some of the youngsters there at the table were getting very tired. And one of them actually fell asleep and did a face plant right into his dinner plate. <laughs> that was pretty funny. <laughs> For all kinds of reasons, I love family meals. We get to talk, we get to share life together, and, and yes, we do find time to actually eat. And based on all I've read, I think that the dynamics of our family are actually somewhat similar to the dynamics of the ancient Jewish people. Because for them, when they gathered, the social time was just as important as the food. You see, dinner wasn't just about eating, it was about experiencing community. And this was true at every family meal. And it was particularly true of meals that were part of a religious festival like Passover. When a Jewish family gathered for their annual Passover dinner, the atmosphere was so very different from what we experience when we, when we share in communion here in worship. We're quiet. We're solemn. Nothing wrong with that. Passover was different because it was a ceremony within a meal. And so the people would talk and eat and drink and laugh. They would enjoy each other's company. And then at certain prescribed moments, that conversation would be interrupted in order to engage in the next part of the ceremony. Passover was a deeply important experience for the Jewish people. It was at the center of their life together. And in some ways, we could say that the story of Easter begins with the Passover. In particular, a Passover meal that Jesus celebrated with his disciples on the last night of his life. Let's think a minute about that group. For three years... These people have been together. The disciples and Jesus have walked the dusty roads of Israel and they've sailed on the Sea of Galilee. The disciples have been by Jesus' side as he has engaged in teaching, and healing people of sickness, and performing an array of miracles. They've had countless meals together. They're like a family. 
And it's this family group that now gathers in Jerusalem to celebrate Passover. And yet this very special meal, this meal that is supposed to be both festive and solemn, is going to take a very strange twist. Because one man who has walked with Jesus, one man who has been part of this intimate group of friends, no longer is a friend. He's become an enemy. His name is Judas Iscariot. And right before the Passover, he decides to head down the path of betrayal. And there's no one that entraps him into this. He's not led astray by devious people. He does this on his own initiative. He sets out willfully to deceive Jesus. And Matthew, one of the disciples, records this for us in his biography of Jesus. In chapter 26, starting in verse 14. Matthew writes, Then one of the twelve, the one called Judas Iscariot, went to the chief priests and asked, What are you willing to give me if I deliver him over to you? So they counted out for him 30 pieces of silver. And from then on, Judas watched for an opportunity to hand him over. Now, we're not exactly sure why Judas does this. Greed certainly is part of it, but it may not be the whole story because we don't actually know what the worth is of these 30 pieces of silver. Bible scholars have tried to come up with estimates, and they're all over the map. Some people think that this 30 pieces of silver was worth as little as $50. And I've seen estimates as high as $3,000. Most scholars seem to err on the low side. And if you're going to sell someone out, you'd certainly want to get the highest possible price. And Judas may not have done that. But here's the thing. Even if money is the driving force, people often act out of mixed motives. I find myself wondering if Judas perhaps was jealous. We know from what we read in the Bible that Jesus had an inner circle. Peter, James, and John got extra time with Jesus. Maybe Judas was jealous about being excluded from that. Perhaps he was a revolutionary at heart. And when he realized that Jesus was not going to incite an armed rebellion against Rome, he got angry and wanted to sabotage him. We don't know. We don't know all that motivates Judas. What we do know is this, he chose his personal agenda over the agenda of Jesus, and that never is wise. And because of the choice that he makes, he has been this intimate companion of Jesus, and now he decides to become an enemy. So he initiates this act of deceit. And he will try to practice that deceit and keep his betrayal hidden as Jesus and the disciples celebrate the Passover dinner. Let's continue on. Verse 17. On the first day of the festival of unleavened bread, the disciples came to Jesus and asked, where do you want us to make preparations for you to eat the Passover? He replied, go into the city to a certain man and tell him, the teacher says, my appointed time is near. I'm going to celebrate the Passover with my disciples at your house. So the disciples did as Jesus had directed them. 
and prepared the Passover. When evening came, Jesus was reclining at the table with the twelve. And while they were eating, he said, oh my goodness, listen to this, listen. Truly, I tell of you, one of you will betray me. They were very sad and began to say to him one after the other, surely you don't mean me, Lord. Jesus replied, the one who has dipped his hand into the bowl with me will betray me. The Son of Man will go just as it is written about him. But woe to that man who betrays the Son of Man. It would be better for him if he had not been born. Then Judas, the one who would betray him, said, Surely you don't mean me, Rabbi. Jesus answered, You have said so. Jerusalem during Passover week was this incredibly crowded place as people flocked from all over to participate in the ceremonies. Local residents would rent out their houses or rent out rooms within their houses for people to stay and or to celebrate the Passover. And Jesus obviously has found such a room and he's made arrangements to use it without telling the disciples. He's kept the location secret so that Judas can't bring the authorities to interrupt the meal. This Passover must take place for reasons that will become clear. And Judas is able to deceive the other disciples, but he can't deceive Jesus. They have no idea what's going on, but Jesus does. Because Jesus can see into the heart of every person. He sees what's in my heart. He sees what's in your heart. He sees what's in Judas's heart. And yet, even though he knows precisely what is going on, as the meal progresses, he doesn't blow the whistle on Judas. I find this interesting. And you know me, I love to hypothesize the, you know, what might have happened, the what ifs. So I think about what would have happened if Jesus, in the midst of that meal, would have pointed at Judas and said, you're a traitor. And I wonder what Peter would have done. <laughs> Mr. Impetuous, the guy who, who acts first and thinks later. I picture Peter hearing those words and leaping across the table and putting Judas in a hammerlock, you know. Nothing like that ever happens. There's no verbal or physical altercation between Judas and the other disciples, because Jesus really doesn't directly confront him. In fact, what he does is he confronts the entire group by breaking into the conversation and announcing, one of you will betray me. Now, let's face it, that's not normal dinner table conversation. I think there would have been instant tension in the room. I think there would have been a profound silence. Because Jesus has just made a horrifying accusation. He is saying, in essence, one of you, one member of this group of people who have become my family, one of you who are part of these most intimate of my relationships, one of you is trying to deceive me right here, right now, about your intentions. One of you will betray me. And the responses are fascinating. Now, if you and I are accused 
and we believe ourselves to be innocent, how would we respond? We would respond with an emphatic statement, not me, Jesus. No way. They don't do that. Every one of them asks a question. Surely you don't mean me, Lord. You see, they've been with Jesus long enough. They're aware that Jesus can see into their hearts in a way that they cannot. And so his accusation has caused each of them to wonder, could it, could it possibly be me? I think it's very clear that Jesus wanted all of them to take time to stop and to think and to look inside themselves. We don't often do this, but you know what? Internal reflection in a prayerful attitude is really important and it's vital and necessary for our spiritual health. We've got to take time to look within. And as I ponder this, it occurs to me, you know, we're not seated at that table. And yet for all of us, there will be times in life when we have to make choices. All of us at times are going to have an opportunity to stand with Jesus or to deny Jesus. To stand with Jesus or perhaps try to deceive Jesus. To stand with Jesus or maybe even to betray Jesus. I think this is a great question for everyone to ask. Could it be me, Lord? And we'll only get the right answer if we're honest with ourselves and honest with Christ. And Judas isn't honest. Oh, he goes through the motions. He asks the same question that the other disciples do. But did you notice there's a really profound difference? The others say, could it be me, Lord? He says, could it be me, Rabbi? In this moment of duplicity, Judas cannot bring himself to call Jesus Lord. It's a telltale sign. And yet Jesus, once again, doesn't really confront Judas directly. He instead gives this rather vague response. You have said so. He puts it on Judas. And so the other disciples seem to be oblivious, which is the way Jesus wants it. He does not want Judas to behave or to act based on the influence of others, based on their emotions, based on their opinions, or based on any peer pressure. He wants Judas to act based solely on the dictates of his own conscience. And we need to understand that when people have hard hearts, we cannot force them to change. Human beings have free will. And they have a choice. They can yield to the Holy Spirit who wants to draw them to Jesus. Or they can resist the Holy Spirit and continue down a destructive path. That was true for Judas. It's true for us. And what's so tragic here is that Judas refuses to change course. His mind and his heart appear to be made up. He is set. And even though he's had these interactions with Jesus, yes, they've been a little veiled and a little vague, but I think Judas knows that Jesus knows. 
And can you imagine the look in Jesus's eye when he looked at Judas in that conversation? And Judas digs in his heels and chooses his actions. Now our passage here in the book of Matthew doesn't tell us exactly what comes next. We have to look at the book of John to fill in the blanks. And what we learn from John is that after this, Jesus and Judas exchange a few more words, and then Judas leaves. He's not around for what happens next. And that's part of the tragedy. And then we see what Jesus does in response to this deceit. He refuses to be sidetracked. He presses on with what he's planned from the beginning. And he gives the remaining 11 disciples a message of hope for the the future. And he does so by transforming Passover. He transforms Passover into this deeply spiritual act of worship that we call communion. Look what Jesus does next. Verse 26, while they were eating... Jesus took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and gave it to his disciples, saying, Take and eat, this is my body. And then he took a cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, Drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink from this fruit of the vine from now until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. Oh, what a message of hope. There is a great future celebration waiting for the people of God. And when they had sung a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Now, most of us probably didn't grow up Jewish, and so we may not be familiar with the ritual of the Passover, but it follows a script. And until this particular night, that script had remained largely unchanged for centuries. And in that passage we just read, Jesus rewrites the script. Now, the essence of Passover is this. It recalls the night when God pronounced judgment on the Egyptian people who were keeping the Hebrews enslaved. The Jews were spared from death that night. God passed over them. And he did so because the Jews sprinkled the blood of innocent lambs on their doorposts. It was a sign of their dependence on God. And on that night, God displayed his power and his protection for his people. And it was that night which paved the way for the Jewish people to be set free from the bondage of slavery. That's what Passover means. And what does Jesus do? He inserts new words and new meaning into the middle of this ancient scripted ceremony. And he does so because he wants the disciples to understand that this familiar feast actually has been telling his story from the very beginning. Jesus is the ultimate Passover lamb, the final one the world ever will need. And his blood, which will be shed on the cross the very next day, will cover the sins of mankind. His blood will allow every person of faith to be passed over and to escape the justice of God that we all, all deserve. Every person who puts their trust in Jesus can be set free from slavery to sin and therefore experience the best that God has to offer us. 
And so Jesus does something very simple, yet very profound. He takes a piece of that Passover bread and he rips it apart. And he says, this is my body. He takes a cup, and it's the after-dinner cup. The cup that in the Passover represents God's salvation. And Jesus says, this is my blood. In this moment, Jesus is proclaiming himself Lord and Savior. I think the disciples would be shocked. I don't think they fully understood what Jesus actually was saying in that moment. I think it was almost incomprehensible to them. And I don't believe it was until after the death and the burial and the resurrection of Jesus that they finally began to connect the dots and understand exactly who Jesus is. This is how Jesus responds to the deceit of Judas. He presses on. He refuses to be sidetracked from the purposes of God. And he shows how his life and his death have been proclaimed through the Passover. And he gives his followers the clues they will need to make sense of the events that will happen over the next few days. Jesus never is waylaid by deceit, deceit or betrayal. He forges ahead. And having explained what is about to happen, then the next day he becomes the sacrificial lamb that the world needs. The sacrificial lamb that these disciples need. The sacrificial lamb that Judas needed and yet rejected. As I read this, I find myself wondering, oh, if only Judas would have stuck around. Maybe, just maybe, if he'd heard these words from Jesus, maybe it would have pierced his heart. Maybe, just maybe, he would have fallen in sorrow at the feet of Jesus. Probably not, though, because people with hard hearts usually find it very difficult to relent. And it usually takes something very dramatic in order to break them. So it's only later, after Jesus has been crucified, that Judas is struck by the enormity of his betrayal. And in his anguish, he takes his own life. Because of his deceit, because of his betrayal, his life ends in ruins. What a tragic end for Judas. But what should we do with this unusual, distinctive story from the life of Christ? What do we learn from Judas? And what do we learn from Jesus? From Judas, we learn the obvious lesson that we cannot deceive Christ. We often act like we can, but we can't. And we learn what also should be obvious, that it's so foolish to become an enemy of the Lord. That is a path that leads only to destruction. And from Jesus, among other things, we learn how to respond to deceit. We press on. We do not let deceivers sidetrack us from the purpose of God. 
And above all things, this story reminds us that Jesus had one overriding purpose to become a sacrifice on our behalf so we could be set free from sin and guilt and experience a life that is rich and full of great joy as we walk each day in relationship with the living God. And the joy of knowing God is captured in the final moments of this Passover meal. Because as we read here, as they conclude the meal, they finish with a song. And guess what? We know what they sang. The words come from Psalm 115, 116, 117, or 118. Because those psalms traditionally are sung at the conclusion of special feasts like Passover. And we don't know the ancient tune that they used, but we know the words. We know the words that Jesus was singing on the last night of his life. Rich words of praise like these. Not to us, Lord, but to your name be the glory. I love the Lord, for he heard my voice. He heard my cry for mercy. Give thanks to the Lord, for he is good. His love endures forever. Those are the kind of things Jesus was singing as he left his Passover meal and began his journey to the cross. And now, because of the way that Jesus has redefined Passover, it is clear that he is Lord. He is the Lord who is talked about in these psalms. He is the Lord of whom these psalms speak. And so he is the Lord to whom we give praise. He is the Lord to whom we give thanks. He is the Lord whose faithfulness to us endures forever. And so we are reminded that above all things, we must keep our focus on Jesus, our Lord, our Savior our Passover lamb. And when we keep our focus on Christ, then we keep our lives and our issues in proper perspective. And when we keep our focus on Christ, then guess what? Our fears and our anxieties begin to fade. And when we keep our focus on Jesus, then we can press on through times of doubt. And when we keep our focus on Jesus, our Lord, we never will betray him or deny him or try to deceive him. Judas followed his own broken conscience and it led him to destruction. We need to make the better choice to follow Jesus and to follow him wherever he might lead.